Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 11th, 2020, and my guest is philosopher and professor L.A. Paul of Yale University. Her latest book and the subject of today's conversation is Transformative Experience. Laurie, welcome to Econ Talk. It's nice to be here. Uh, this book tied together a number of issues I've been thinking about lately related to rationality, decision-making, data, evidence, uh, how to live your life, uh, and it did so in some very delightful and unexpected ways. It's hard to believe, but in the entire Econ Talk archive of over 700-plus episodes, I have never had a guest talk about being a vampire. But that that, that, that streak is over. Uh, I want to start with how you start your book with a seemingly silly question. Turns out not to be silly. Uh, but the question is, should a person become a vampire? Why is that a hard decision? Well, so I think the possibility of becoming a vampire is an intensely interesting one. I like to imagine Dracula coming to you as you're touring a dungeon somewhere in Europe and offering you this irreversible choice. Do you want to join his legions of the undead and get these amazing new sensory powers and look fabulous in black and... <laughs> be incredible in all sorts of uh, sexy ways? Or uh, do you want to just live your ordinary life as a human? That's how he'd put it. But there are other ways to think about it, right? Do you want to sleep in a coffin, never spend another summer's day on the beach, and drink blood? Now, I think it's important to elide moral issues. So whatever blood you were drinking might be artificial blood or you know, humanely farmed animal blood or something <laughs> like that. Um, but it's a it's a thought experiment um, designed around one sort of central issue, which is as you find out about the possibility of becoming a vampire, as you talk to other former humans who are vampires, because of course immediately what you do is go out and try to get some uh, evidence and information about what it's like to be a vampire to make your decision, you find out that, at least according to their testimony, they say you can't really understand what it's like to be a vampire until you become one. Mere humans just lack the ability to kind of comprehend uh, the kind of fantastic supernatural reality that we vampires live. So if you're going to make this choice, let's say Dracula's going to come to you at midnight, you open the window of your Airbnb if you want him to stay and make him one of your – or make, make, make you one of his, uh, or you keep your window closed and you leave, right? So your decision is to either embrace him or reject him. And if that decision is based on whether you want to become a vampire, which turns on what it would be like for you to become a vampire, then you have a problem because if – it's the kind of thing that you can only know and understand once you become a vampire. And if it's irreversible, this is a one-shot sort of thing, then you lack um, the kind of information that you need to make an informed decision. Or so I argue. There's a problem here, namely that you don't know what it's like to live your life forward as a vampire. That's what you would need to assign value to in order to decide whether 
you want to have that life or whether you want to keep the life that you have. If you can't assign that possibility value, at least straightforwardly, basically value based on what it would be like for you to be a vampire, then your preferences are un, like incomplete or you haven't got the information that you need to make the choice in an informed way. Well, in particular, you argue that you can't figure out what your expected utility would be, the likely level of well-being or happiness that you'd attain. And it's further complicated by the fact that how you feel about being a vampire might be very different once you are one than before you are one. Exactly. So one, there are a number of you know sort of obvious responses to this initial um, kind of puzzle that I like to talk about. So the first thought is, look, ordinarily when you're thinking about some new thing, like whether you want to build an addition onto your house, you imaginatively model what it would be like to have a house like that or a room like that and think of yourself enjoying that room, how much you would enjoy it and how much it would cost to build it and make your decision you know, sort of on that basis. Or maybe you look at a, a bunch of different plans and choose between them. And that's just a very natural way to do things. But in this context, you haven't got that information because you can't know what it's like to be a vampire, so you can't model things in this imaginative way. So then well, what do you do? Well, maybe you try and get you know, evidence from other vampires, people who have become vampires, and find out what it was like for them. And then if they all seem to like it, maybe that's just good enough. Um, but the problem is, uh, well, there are several problems, but one problem is that um, with this kind of choice, it seems like it changes you in a very deep and fundamental way. So it changes in many ways, who you are. For example, if you become a vampire, you might have uh, very strong opinions about what kind of blood you like, you know, what sort of uh, animals or what sort of artificial construction you prefer. Whereas I wager, like right now, you probably don't have those preferences. Um, if you become a vampire, you'll probably prefer to drink blood uh, over anything else. Like fine wine just loses its savor. Right? So there are all kinds of taste preferences that will change. Arguably, um, you may care less about other people and a lot more about yourself if you're a vampire. They have a reputation for being narcissists. These kinds of changes are substantial. Um, and in addition, the way that I envision the, t the testimony is that from vampires say that, you know, this is an incredible, amazing experience. You should absolutely do it. It changed my life. Um, and so some of your kind of fundamental and core desires and preferences are really just going to be quite different. Now, if you can't know what it's like to become a vampire and yet you know you're going to change radically, so you can't project yourself into um, that possible life, then there's a further question about how you're supposed to evaluate this testimony of these vampires. Because even though as vampires, they might be incredibly satisfied with the life that they've chosen um, and the way that they are now, right? Um, how does that compare to what they cared about when they were human? Right? Does it naturally extend, if their preferences changed radically, then whose preferences matter when you make that decision? The preferences of the vampire or the preferences of the human that made the decision? And normally, you point out, one might turn to um, social science research. You might ask, uh, let's look at the characteristics of people who became vampires and whether they correlate with your characteristics and the ones that turn out to be happier than others, or you know, you've you've sort of worded this that everybody likes being a vampire once they become one. But of course, in real life, <laughs> to coin a really inappropriate phrase in this thought experiment, 
in real life, some people turn out they regret being a vampire. They miss being human. And so you'd want to know, am I like that person? Just like when you consider building that addition to your house, you might go talk to the people who've done it and go look at their houses and see, are they like me? Are they not like me, given the costs and given what the room is like and how it changes the you know, the lack of the reduction reduces claustrophobia, whatever it is. And you point out, I think correctly, that the science on these kind of questions is never, I underline never, uh, fine grained enough. I think that's your phrase to make a reliable prediction about how you will feel. In other words, it might be true that on average, um, you know, former, uh, Faculty members of such and such a university who are five foot six and who were born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, like being a vampire once they become a vampire. But since they won't have any data on, say, the um, uh, country of origin of my great grandmother on my father's side, they're going to miss out something crucial that turns out to affect you know how much people like it, and therefore the sort of standard techniques you might use to assess whether this is a good idea might be useful on average, which could be used, say, in a policy discussion, but might not and are unlikely to be useful to me. Right. Okay. So there are at least, there are about at least three things that I focus on in this kind of, in this situation, because absolutely, I mean, the normal thing to do in a normal context is to go and get, sometimes people just rely on anecdotal uh, evidence. I think that it's better to rely on the science. I mean, for obvious reasons, it's, um, it's, it's vetted. So let's pretend that there's plenty of social science and testimonial evidence from vampires that has been collected up by careful psychologists, economists, sociologists, etc., and you have you're presented with, or your investigations, you know, present you with um, uh, an assessment of the well-being or life satisfaction or happiness or whatever it is that vampires experience once they've become vampires. And how do you evaluate that information as it uh, as it applies to you? Now. If you um, the three problems that I want that I think are related here, one there's a problem of reference. There's a reference class problem. Like you have to know that this evidence applies to you, in the sense that it applies to people like you. The second problem involves um, assessing the meaning of an average value result, and then the third problem, which I want to talk about, um, is a little bit conceptually harder, and that involves the problem of this diachronic decision and the relationship of the testimony, which applies to after-the-fact assessment. And that involves what's called um, act-state independence. So the first case... Explain what you mean by diachronic. uh, Diachronic means across time. So you make a choice... Uh, you make a choice to undergo an experience, and you make that choice, let's say, at, uh, at noon, and then you undergo the experience um, you know, a few hours later and become a vampire, let's say, by 5 p.m. Let's say it doesn't happen instantaneously, or even if it does, it takes a couple seconds. And so you're making a choice at T1 at noon um, for a future self, the one at 5 p.m. that's a vampire. So it's diachronic in the sense that it's uh, across times in a relevant way. But the reference class thing is the easiest thing, so let me talk about that first. Uh, the Ordinarily, when you're looking at evidence, you need to know that it applies to people like you. In the book, I didn't even, like, I tried to kind of elide that issue because I thought there were, you know, harder questions in the office. Can of worms, too. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But like very loosely, the problem is, well, how do you know uh, that you're, um, you know, that, that the population of humans that turn into vampires, right, um, is a population that's similar to you in relevant respects so that you know that you would respond the way that they did, at least, you know, in the sense that you would testify relevantly uh, in the same way as they would. That's a classic and, problem with, say, returns to going to college. People who go to college make more than people who don't, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people who haven't gone to college and do will turn out economically to do as well because they're not exactly the same. Exactly. So there's all kind of black boxing issues here, all kinds of questions. Um, and, of course, these questions come up um, with respect to taking ordinary evidence and applying to this case. Now, why I think it's why it's interesting in this case that uh, the reference class problem has some relevance, like special relevance here, is just that I think with life-changing decisions, it's especially important to worry about being a member of the reference class. In low-stakes cases, you might say, well, it seems like I'm kind of similar in the relevant ways, or maybe things like, you know, you mentioned going to college, like standard demographic variables seem like the right ones to rely on. Maybe people of my social class, people of, you know, my age or whatever tend to have a good effect. But something as interesting and distinctive as becoming a vampire, or um, as I talk, I talked about other cases. I'm sure we'll get to them, like cases involving um, uh, having a child or disability or whatever. Um, it seems like so many other variables matter, other than the demographic variables that are usually assessed. That there is a kind of reference class problem here, because what can the properties that seem to matter? What how you think you need to be similar to the other individuals, um, the individuals who are tested, can be highly variable you might not have that information. And because it's a life stakes, high, uh, high value, life-changing question, it really matters to you that you get it right. So just kind of flipping a coin or hoping for the best isn't good. It seems the other key crucial point is that, you know, you remodel your house, you called it small stakes. There are a lot of things you can do that decisions you can make that you can reverse. If you decide to go to college and it's not working out for you, you can drop out. Uh, getting married, you could get divorced, but it's a big change. Having a child, you're kind of stuck with them. Uh, choosing a career, well, you can change careers, but as these decisions are very, very different from uh, what to have for dinner and uh, where to go on vacation, right? A lost, horrible vacation that you're not enjoying, you could end. These are things that are typically no return choices or, if returned, very high cost. Exactly. And and sometimes even the act of like making the choice changes you in this irreversible way. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think, you know, and so because it's just such a huge kind of psychological thing to, to actually make the choice in the first place. Um, and then you can have responsibility to others, for example, the child that you would create, etc. So I think it, I think the reference class problem, as ordinary as it is, actually takes on special significance in this context. The same is true of a related thing, which is this question about average values. When you you know, evaluate evidence um, and, and you're told, well, you know, um, people testify to uh, such and such kind of degree of life increase in life satisfaction or decrease or whatever the question is, the values that you get are average values, which means they're averaged, um, like there's a, a lot of variation within like some kind of span of error. And again, because we're talking about high stakes, life altering decisions, the fact that you could fall anywhere on a span, like a, that can be a fairly large or significant error bar with respect to average values, can actually have a huge impact. 
So even if you have the best evidence, reasonable evidence that you can have, um, you still, in a sense, don't have the right kind of fine-grained evidence about how the value that you would receive, even if you are a member of the reference class, and even if you know that the value that you're going to get from this change is going to be somewhere along that span. That's especially important if that um, if the error bar, you know, extends between positive and negative values. It's not just the error bar, though. I, you know, it's the you don't know what your draw from the urn is going to be like. Uh, you don't know what kind of child you're going to have. I have to move it away from vampires for a moment because we're going to turn to that question soon. Um, you don't know whether you're going to be uh, someone who loves being a professor, thinks it's pretty much okay except during exam time when you have to grade a lot, whether you hate it all the time. I mean, the the average return is very misleading. And I think the emphasis in decision theory on expected utility, which is just basically the probability of an outcome times the um, the outcome itself, the, the payoff, is a grotesquely um, simplified and misleading choice. It's a misleading choice in gambling, where it's often invoked as if it's like science, but it's certainly a misleading choice in life. Um, expected utility is not what you maximize. It's a stupid idea. You 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 care about the whole range of the distribution. And you will feel very differently about a slightly uh, pleasant outcome and versus a, a horrific one. And so the idea of – and you, you allude to this at various times in the book the, – the idea that you would not pay extremely close attention to downside risk or upside return and only look at the, the average is, is absurd in, in human life and, and in most investing and gambling decisions. So I think that whole framework – I'm tempted to say it's a straw man. Uh, but I think it's not, and I think uh, part of what your book is doing is making how making it clear just how inappropriate that criterion is for making big decisions. Right. So this, you know, the span that matters here is the span between like the most negative and the most positive value that you could get that's consistent with the average value. And of course, right, what matters is how you would actually respond and what value you would actually have. It matters a huge amount, and that's what we really care about when we're making decisions, even independently of is should we think about maximizing expected value? Should you know, you know, in some larger sense, even if we follow the the rough guidelines, the fact that the details that we can get given empirical evidence won't allow us to make a decision, even in that framework, in the in the careful way that we want to, uh, is a problem. Let me say, though, that there's a special, again, a special reason why in the kinds of cases I'm interested in, there's a distinctive problem. The distinctive problem is that um, in the book, I talk about epistemic revelation and epistemic transformation. And part of what I mean there is like when you become a vampire. Epistemic meaning related uh, to knowledge. I mean, yeah, really, yes. And um, what I what I say is that there's a there's there we can find ourselves in certain situations where we can't know about something until we actually experience it, and that's partly just because of the way the brain works. Sometimes description and testimony just can't give us what we need. We actually have to have the experience. And a, a, a stock example in philosophy is like the experience of seeing red. Like you can't teach someone what it's like to see red. Um, just by describing what it's like to see red to them, they have to actually have seen it, or at least seen you know colors very close to it at best. You explain you know? the explain the Mary's room example. 
Okay. So um, in uh, there's a, an example by Frank Jackson where uh, he talks about how imagine Mary, who grows up in a black and white environment, has only seen black and white and maybe shades of gray, is then faced um, with the possibility of like going out uh, into the rest of the world and seeing color for the first time. Now, Jackson is using this example for a particular argument about consciousness. I'm not making that argument, um, and so I don't. My example is not quite as constrained as his. But the basic picture is this: that when Mary leaves. Let's say she goes out there. When Mary leaves her black and white room and sees a red fire engine for the first time, assuming that she has ordinary color vision, she learns something new, what it's like to see red. A lot of people, myself included, the vast majority of philosophers agree with this. And I think non-philosophers also agree with this to the extent that I've talked about. So and it really just comes down to, again, um, the way that the brain works. Sometimes experience teach us, teaches us things that we couldn't know in any other way. If you imagine someone who's congenitally blind um, or congenitally deaf who then, uh, through some kind of surgery, gains the capacity to see or the capacity to have ordinary uh, hearing, they're going to learn something new uh, about about the world or they're going to have new kinds of experiences, basically, um, from the stimuli that they receive about the world. And the thought is that this teaches us that sometimes experience expands us epistemically. It adds or changes what we know. And that we can't get that from simple description or testimony. So going back to um, uh, the issue that I was um, talking about with respect to average value and also to some extent to the reference class problem. But sometimes when we get description and testimony and we're told uh, about some possible outcome and how we're likely to respond, right, we try to kind of find our own we try to kind of narrow down, I think, the information that we're given by imaginatively reflecting on how we would respond to a particular situation to get an assessment of how we think the claim about the average value is that we'll receive, you know, corresponds to our own best kind of forecasting. So we, we forecast for ourselves individually and try to project ourselves forward. But in this kind of context, we can't do it because we lack the um, information that we need to be able to do that kind of um, imaginative projection. That's the point. It's because you have to have the experience that you kind of gain the ability to kind of assess what this experience is like. And so you can't actually even come like try to minimize or address the problem of, of, of average value in the ordinary way by imagining how you would respond, assuming that there's a kind of accuracy constraint here, to try to kind of fine grain the data that you get in some useful way. So again, because it's a transformative experience involving both epistemic and personal transformation, um, you find yourself in a high-stakes situation where you lack the, even the ordinary tools that you might use in ordinary contexts to fix the reference class and try to fine-grain the average value result for yourself. I think you used the phrase, um, science has not created a sufficiently fine-grained source of data yet. But I would go as far as to say that it is beyond the scope of social science, to do that, uh, or science generally. It's not a scientific question. Ultimately, in a recent episode with Peter Singer, when I suggested that, uh, that we would never have a science of happiness, he would say we're not there yet, but that we're making progress. And I said, we'll never get there. He was shocked that an economist would say that this was not, um, not just not likely, but Essentially, I, I view it as unscientific to try to do that. I think there are aspects of the human experience that are not quantifiable. Um, and I think the 
attempt to reduce the experience of a vampire, being a vampire or having a child to, to what mathematicians call a scalar, uh, meaning a single number. Oh, well, you know, being a vampire, that's an 8.3. If you stay human, it's only a 7.1. <laughs> I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of reality. Uh, of course, we can take the multifaceted aspects of being a vampire, the multifaceted aspects of having a child, the multifaceted aspects of choosing to be a lawyer instead of a doctor, and weight them. We can make an equation that turns them into a scalar, the different aspects, and then assess their level and then weight them to get a combined score of life as a lawyer. I think that is a fundamental violence to what it's like to be a parent, say. that To say, I mean, I'm glad I, I have four children. I'm glad I had them um, so far. You know, they're, they're, you, <laughs> I don't say that's just a joke. I mean, it's possible that over the course of a lifetime, you could have, or you could regret having children. But the 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 idea that the highs and lows of having children that that somehow you could wait the sleepless nights and anxiety against the deepest satisfactions you might have as a parent, and somehow combine them into a score to decide whether it was worthwhile or not, just strikes me as Unhuman, anti-human. I understand the urge of science and, and social science to do that, but I think it's a mistake. And uh, I'm curious your reaction to that. So I'm sympathetic to that. Although, let me just say that I want to get to the, the, the third, the third. I'll bring you back. Serious problem. Right. Got it. Um, yeah, I mean, I in the book I talk about having a certain kind of epistemic humility. Again, humility about like what we can do and what we can't, and. I'm sympathetic to the thought that you can't, I think you certainly can't reduce the nature and character of human experience to a number. Um, but what's even maybe more important is in what you, you know, what you're saying that there's a kind of misunderstanding of the kind of comparison we need to make and the kind of decision that we need to make by attempting to kind of reduce everything to a particular type of quantifiable result. The way that I like to think about it is by recognizing that there might be a mistake in trying to kind of, you know, reduce the sort of richness of the and quality and character of human experience to numbers, at least in certain contexts, even if, let's say, for policy reasons, we have to do it in other kinds of situations. Is that what we need to do then is, is recognize that that's not the right thing to do and develop alternative models and think about alternative ways of making decisions that can respect this and just face face the, the constraints that, that the world gives us. Yeah. Uh, I have some thoughts on, on the alternatives. We're going to get to that, of course. So, But what's your third uh, thing that's troubling? Okay. The third thing is, I actually think, um, the most serious problem. And again, um, it's distinctive to the question of a transformative experience where you undergo a life-changing experience that also changes like what you know and that you learn about it only once you've done it. And that goes back to this issue about diachronic decision-making because – if you have to make a choice about whether to undergo this life-changing decision and it's going to change who you are in a kind of fundamental and core way, some of your central preferences, then you have to decide, especially if in that context right now, let's say you prefer not to become a vampire, but all the testimony that you're getting or the vast majority of the testifiers that you're listening to tell you it's fabulous to become a vampire. And you think, in fact, that... Uh, maybe for whatever reason, it's quite likely that if you became a vampire, you'd be happy with that result too. 
then you have to figure out whether you want to respect your current preferences, your ex-ante preferences, your preferences at the time of decision to not be a vampire and just kind of override those and choose uh, or whether you want to choose, uh, sorry, or, or and, uh, whether you want to respect those preferences and so not override them or choose to override those somehow and become a vampire because you know who you'll become will be happy with that result. And the question is, like, what's the principled way? Is there a principled way to do this, right? Which self matters, the self making the decision or the self that would result? If they conflict and there's no kind of meta principle to resolve it, there's no, like, both selves, isn't the selves don't agree on, like, what the ultimate correct decision should be, then you don't have a decision rule that you can use. And earlier I said that the way that I understand the problem in the context of transformative experience is that in these cases where the choice changes who you are, then there's a violation of a kind of fundamental axiom that's usually taken right the act independence, uh, act state independence axiom. Uh, and the way that I think of it is, is that normally when you're changing something, let's say um, about yourself or about the world, you have to keep everything else fixed to assess the value of that change correctly. And when people talk about um, dependence, uh, they want to find out what does, you know, how do, can I understand uh, the structure or the mechanism uh, um, of the dependence that I'm discovering? If I wiggle one thing and then another thing wiggles, is there a straightforward connection between those wiggles that will allow me to make the desired inference? And in this case, you know, you can know that if you become a vampire, you'll be highly satisfied with the result, even though right now you don't want to become a vampire. So you know if you wiggle things, if you become a vampire, that you'll be satisfied. But you don't know uh, whether or not that's because there's some maybe internal preference that you have that just would be realized by this, um, or whether, no, it's just that you get your, that your preferences just simply get replaced, and so you become a new kind of self. So there is no, uh, the, the, the act that you undergo, right, and the state that you have um, uh, at the end of it are dependent on each other. Who you are as a person changes. And so there's no kind of straightforward way to make the decision, no way to evaluate um, which self should take priority. So I want to thank Plantronics for uh, providing Larry's headset, the Blackwater 5220. And to respond to that point um, about the change in who you are, I think it reminded me of a couple of things. One is it reminded me of Nozick's um, experience machine, you know, whether you'd want to hook yourself up to a machine. And once you're on the machine, you don't know that you're on the machine. You feel like you're living actual life and you're president of the United States, you're a gold medal skier, whatever world-class philosopher, whatever uh, is your fantasy of what would be the greatest experiences to have. Uh, rock star, et cetera. Uh, but you won't know that you've left behind your, quote, real self. And, you know, in that situation, uh, I think we're troubled by that. The vampire one's kind of silly. Uh, we have trouble thinking about it. But when I talk about this decision to have children, and listeners know I've been talking episodically on about this on various episodes about whether this is an analytical decision or not, should it be an analytical decision? One of the things I suggested was, well, you're a different person after you've had kids. Anybody who's had mm -hmm. kids knows that. You know that after you've had – anyone who has kids knows that after you've had kids, you feel very differently about kids than before. You certainly feel differently about your own kids because you didn't have any before. Uh, and so you are a different person. 
And you raised the example, I'm going to give a, a variation on it, of, um, of someone who, let's say, takes a drug, becomes addicted, and then let's just say becomes blissfully ignorant of everything and drifts off into a, a, a very pleasant uh, drug-induced euphoria that lasts forever. Um, you know, most people would say, mm, I'm not so crazy about that. They understand there's something slightly disturbing about the uh, experience machine. The parenting thing, it doesn't strike them as similar because, well, people do that and, and it seems okay. But they're fundamentally the same problem, which is that ex-ante, uh, your decisions about how you feel about it don't have a very um, analytical way to be compared to the ones that come after. It just isn't, it just, it's over analytically, it seems to me. Exactly. So a way to put what you were saying and also and what I say in the book is that um, there are a class of decisions that have this structure. Let's say um, the decision to get a frontal lobotomy, the decision to be eaten by a shark, uh, where it's bad, you, you, like the result would be bad. The decision to get a frontal, frontal lobotomy, presumably you would testify that it was good. Um, these decisions where they change you in all kinds of crazy ways um, and where the shark one is weird, but what I was suggesting is uh, there could be someone who said, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad I was like I was uh, injured in, in this way. It taught me something about life." But we all we obviously think like it's like you don't purposely get yourself injured by a shark. Um, but you, you talk in the book about people who volunteer for to be on the front lines of war, which is close yes, exactly. to jumping in shark infested waters. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so the 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 point is that. Um, we have this incompatibility in certain kinds of life-changing decisions um, or experiences more, more generally um, where there's an incompatibility between the, the selves. And in some cases, culturally, we just don't do that. You don't get a frontal lobotomy. We have this, you know, we, we say, well, we value um, a certain kind of uh, mental capacity over another kind of mental capacity. And so that just gives us the rule that we follow. Or uh, you don't choose to um, undergo great pain um, unless there's some, you know, other argument for doing so, et cetera. But then there are cases like choosing to have a child where there isn't a kind of dominant cultural narrative in the sense that we understand some people want to have children and other people don't. Um, we, uh, or maybe choosing to go uh, to sacrifice uh, yourself in other ways, like um, to devote yourself to the care of, of the poor or to you know, give up all kinds of things in order to help other people. There are lots of things that people do, but that we don't expect everyone to do that involve these kinds of life-changing decisions and where um, the solution is not supposed to be that you follow some dominant cultural rule, but that you think about it for yourself and make the decision that's best for you and maybe the people right around you. And my point is, well, as soon as we leave it to the individual and that these involve if and if we're what we're leaving to the individual is the choice of whether or not to, to undergo a life-changing experience that's going to change also like what someone knows and understands or make you into a new kind of person then we're confronted with a decision problem because we don't have any kind of rule to follow and we lack the ability to make this the decision by ourselves in the way that we're sort of expecting ourselves to make that decision you talk a lot about i would call it a a meta solution to this problem, which is that, and I think it's the way many people think about it, and I think it's the way many uh, cultural norms think about it, which is um, 
And in the case of having children, uh, I've argued that it's probably a good idea to have children. Not everybody should have children. Not everybody can, of course. But for those who can, it's a good idea because it's part of the human experience. It's, um, it's something to experience. It, you could argue it's, it's harmful. You could argue you might not like it. Um, but it is part of what most people through human history have experienced. And it will change you and you will explore it. Um, you will become a new person. And there's something about having a a taste for novelty, which you which you talk about. A lot of people don't like that. They're very risk averse about novelty, and they like to not try new foods, not try new things, not travel, etc. But for a lot of people, just the idea of experiencing something you haven't experienced before has a a novel uh, novel is not the right word. There it has a beneficial effect on the experience of being alive. Um, you know, I think people invoke this not just about having children, they invoke it about have trying certain mind-altering drugs or mushrooms. They invoke it about, you know, I talked about being on a silent meditation retreat. When I tell that to people, they often say, well, I couldn't do that. And I try to say, oh, yes, you could. <laughs> I felt the same way, and I could do it, and, and it's okay. But, of course, they think, oh, that's him, not me. It's exactly the same point you're you're talking about. I'm not suggesting everyone should experience five days of silence, but uh, these are things that that allow you to explore who you are, who you want to be. Some of them are one-way trips. You can't go back. You can't give it up. You can't return it. You can't shorten it. Um, others uh, are of that nature that you can shorten it. But to me, a lot of, of the way we cope with these unknowable outcomes is by saying, sometimes you jump in. And if I don't think I'm going to die... Whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So, um, and I think as you know, in the book, I also defend um, thinking about some of this in terms of like the value of revelation, where I, and I use that term carefully. I mean, I tend to associate it with, with the notion of divine revelation, but really what I mean is a kind of discovery that doesn't have to be divine, but a, you know, a kind of epistemic revelation. But, but <laughs> I think there's an extra thing here that is... Um, I'll use the cha- the I'll use I'll use the case of having a child first, and that is that some people for some people it's more of an obvious revel uh, it's more of an obvious possible good than others. So I think that this is a highly gendered decision, and um, in the context of uh, contemporary Western society, where at least women t- now tend to have the choice, right? Many of us. Uh, if we have active careers and identities that we love um, before we have children, uh, face in effect the choice of whether or not to make this discovery. Um, uh, and if it, we do make this discovery, then we have to give up significant things that we value. Yeah. And I don't think that men face that choice. And I agree 100%. Right. And so, and so, so when it's, and so the, again, I was talking about stakes before. I think this is a kind of decision, this one in particular is much higher stakes often for women than for men. Um, and it's because that negative value can actually uh, be there. Um, if you value, I mean, maybe, maybe you won't care so much about your career after you become a parent. That does happen. But if right now you do care about your career and you care about um, the work that you do and it's part of who you are, then it's not so easy to choose the path of epistemic revelation. 
because you're not quite sure what you're getting and you definitely know maybe what you're giving up. Yeah, I agree. So uh, there's another um, other cases where this happens. I'm especially interested in cases of disability. In the book, I talk about the case too. Um, if you have a child, if you have a child who um, is born uh, with the uh, basically uh, who's who's, who's uh, physically deaf, so doesn't have anything resembling ordinary hearing, um, and this is discovered early on, then you'll have to make the choice of whether to provide the child with cochlear implants, which are physically like largely irreversible, um, or whether um, to um, have the child become kind of a full-fledged member of the deaf community. Uh, and the problem is, well, first of all, if you yourself are deaf and a member of the deaf community, then you know what it's like to be a member of the deaf community, but you may not know what it's like to be um, a member of a community like the sort of, you know, people with uh, ordinary um, audition capacities. Um, and you may not be able to um, connect with your child in the same way if you get cochlear implants for your child. I mean, this is a, so it's a, it's ultimately, if you yourself are deaf, then it's a way of, you might have to give up your child if you decide to get those cochlear implants. Cochlear implants Certainly give up, you give up something. Yeah. Well, with respect to how you relate to your child. I, I mean, I think that deaf parents really feel like um, they give up some of the most, uh, they, they give up the ability to really communicate with their child. Uh, and obviously, this is incredibly important when you raise children. Um, on the other hand, um, um, if you aren't deaf, um, then you have to decide whether, again, uh, whether you want your child to become a member of the deaf community and flourish in that way, or if you want your child to get cochlear implants. And in so, in many ways, um, some of the outcomes are better uh, for those children in terms of like, it looks like like their, some of their career opportunities and other kinds of things turn out to be better because they can assimilate more easily into ordinary society. But in other ways, it's not clear that life is better. Um, and there's a lot of ongoing research about this. But the real problem is that um, if you're supposed to make the decision by imagining what life would be like for your child um, as a member of the deaf community, say, when they're 15 or 18 or 25 or whatever, and compare that to what it would be like for your child uh, to have cochlear implants when they're 15 or 18 or whatever it is. Well, you can't possibly do that. You can't do both things. If you're deaf, maybe you can assess what it would be like for your child to be a member of the deaf community. If you're not deaf, maybe you can try to um, imaginatively assess the value of what it would be like for your child to be um, a member of the kind of ordinary language and hearing community. But e one of those options is going to be inaccessible to you in a very important way. And so I think we're, you know, if you're asking parents to make this choice and project forward, which we do, um, we, which we do do, and we do think actually, and parents think it's very important for them to be able to make that choice. And I totally get that. I would feel the same way if I were making the choice for my child. There's also, we're putting ourselves in a kind of impossible position if we think the right way to make that choice involves this kind of comparison. In other words, to kind of assess which outcome would, would maximize the expected value or be the best along some kind of straightforward dimension. Yeah, I, I, um, I was reading that, that part of the book. The other point that came to mind, which you talk about, is the belief that I think is I think is correct that gaining hearing or gaining sight or gaining some sensory opportunity 
often means a reduction in a different sensory ability. Uh, and that trade-off is, of course, unquantifiable as well. And I think there's a, uh, and I, I, listeners may not know this, I know it because I've, I've read parts of Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, and you reference it in your book. Uh, my wife read, read the entire book, which is quite an achievement. It's a very, very long book. Um, it's an extraordinary book. It's about children who's, who, are, who are not like their parents in every possible way you could, not every, but in a number of widely fascinating and evocative ways that that make you uh, raise ethical and, and other types of, of parenting questions. And in this case, the, the deaf community is very much opposed to cochlear implants uh, because they think there's something uh, wonderful about being deaf that I think is hard for people with hearing to relate to. But I was struck th- reading about that and thinking about it that, you know, I've raised my children uh, in the Jewish religion as Orthodox Jews. Now, they may not all keep that uh, habit. They're unlike being deaf. They can gain hearing if they want. They can leave religion. They can raise their own children however they choose to. But I remember very vividly uh, telling someone that, you know, we, I forget. I, in my memory, it was that we didn't let our kids do Halloween. I don't let my kids do Halloween. I didn't let my kids do Halloween for a number of reasons, one of which was I didn't like them begging. And I also, you know, they're not going to get, they might get candy that's not kosher and Judaism has a holiday of Purim, which is about gift giving, and I thought that was different and better for us. But people are horrified. Non Jews, we're just and non religious Jews, we're horrified that how could you deprive your kids of that? Halloween's wonderful. And I think there's a similar natural reaction that people with hearing have. You're going to keep your kids from hearing music? How could you do that? And the answer is because for, there are a lot of reasons. And it's a. Um, it's an enormous uh, change in culture in the West that that would be a not just defensible but even honorable position, not religion, but but that of, that view of being deaf. That being deaf is is just a different cultural experience. It's to be honored. It's to be uh, experienced. And, and the last thing I'm just going to add because I think it's important and don't want to miss it is that you know happiness is so overrated, <laughs> and 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 I think a lot of of what is challenging about these decisions is coming down to the scalar issue of measuring happiness. I don't want my children to be happy. I want them to have rich lives, which is, includes happiness. I don't want to be miserable. But meaning and satisfaction and, and, and contentment, those are all things that you can call them happiness if you want, but it's just not a, I don't think it's the right way to think about it. I think when we talk about happiness, we're thinking about the sort of the, you know, the highs and lows of, of momentary existence. But those are really unimportant in many ways. Um, I'll come to come back to that. But why don't you react to the point I made about the the deaf versus the hearing community, religion versus non-religion? So um, yes. So let me. I'm just. I was thinking about all of these different things <laughs> as you were speaking. Um, I am very interested, actually, in the case of religious transformation, and in my new book, um, which is not published yet. I. I have a discussion about religious transformation because um, I do think that that is also a transformative experience. Sure, so but, very similar to what you're talking about. Yes, um, I don't think it necessarily involves decision, but it's got an it's an experience that's epistemically and personally transformative. It may be reversible, um, at least in some cases, but I think it brings in interesting questions of its own. But but I I, I take the point that 
trying to understand what's best for someone, for a child or that you, or for yourself um, or for a loved one most general, more generally, um, doesn't always involve kind of simple, simple things that bring happiness, but rather involve things that bring a certain kind of life satisfaction, may involve a certain amount of suffering, may involve a certain amount of difficulty. Um, and I don't think there's a kind of straightforward calculus that we can apply uh, I think the further thing, though, is that this question of evaluating quality of life is also one that I think has a, like there's a role for kind of first-person experience here. So just going back to the idea that sometimes testimony and description can't capture things, sometimes the testimony of others can't give you as much information as you would like about the nature and quality of of their life and that complex balance of experience and satisfaction that each of us you know, has to grapple with. And so we do the best we can, but there's a kind of impossible task that we set for ourselves if we're supposed to really make that kind of judgment. And we certainly don't want to make it on some kind of superficial sense. Well, you know, obviously it's better to be like everyone else along some dimension. Um, obviously it's better for someone to be like me rather than to be different from me. I just, I just don't think that that follows. Um, so what's your, um, so now what? Um, again, I, I want to give you my now what that your book uh, encouraged me to think about, but I want to hear yours first. You've, you've made the case, and you make it at great length in the book, that, and you've made it here, that these are decisions that are not amenable to the standard, I would say either, they're not amenable to either the standard ways we think about decisions or the standard ways we'd like to think we make decisions, you know, that we sit around and we, we weigh the pluses and minuses and we associate the probabilities and we pick the one that has the highest score. I don't think anybody makes real decisions that way. I think people like to think they do. But even in the abstract, you're suggesting that this isn't possible. So what is a person to do? How do you decide whether to have a child, whether to get married, whether to become a dentist, whether to travel, whether to live in the United States, whether to fill in the blank, be a vampire? What do you got for me? Yeah. Well, sometimes when I get asked this question, I explain that I'm much better at asking questions than answering them and raising problems rather than solving them, which is That's also nice. Um, but, I mean, in the book, I say that I think we need to recognize the value of revelation. Um, in other words, that we need to recognize the value of discovering the new, but also respect someone who doesn't want to discover the new because they value what they know now. In other words, I want us to recognize what we can do and what we can't do, what we can know and what we can't know. Not set ourselves impossible tasks, so take a stance involving epistemic humility. And then, from that stance, look at what kinds of decision models we might be able to build. Um, and in addition, I'm a huge fan of like the psychological and social sciences. Uh, I'm doing a lot of collaborative work with people at Yale and uh, Harvard and MIT on problems that have come out of this discussion of transformative experience because I think um, that recognizing what we can and can't do, just given our poor, fragile human brains, um, means that we need to think about the narratives that we tell ourselves a little bit more carefully. We need to think about how we how we apportion praise and blame both to ourselves and to others who find themselves in these kinds of decisions and decision contexts. Um, we need to, I think, rethink some of our takes on disability uh, 
for example, we should never assume that just because someone's had a terrible accident and then testifies to the value of their new life um, is somehow, you know, confused or, you know, has is experiencing cognitive dissonance or something like that, which I really, sorry to say that I think sometimes that ad, I've seen that attitude oh, yeah. kind of created. And, um, sure. Uh, and and just as you were saying before, um, assuming that um, that like living, you know, being a member of the deaf community as a, as a deaf member is somehow you know not as valuable as as being in a community where you have ordinary audition. Like we make these radical assumptions, and par- I want what I wanted the book to do is to raise questions that would keep us maybe from making such radical assumptions, and also to spend more time attending to the value of first person experience. And not just try to step back and think about the ideal choice maker and the ideal situation and then quantify everything from this kind of impersonal quasi-godlike perspective. Because that perspective, as valuable as it can be in some ways, is not the only valuable perspective. Yeah, I want to come back to that, but I want to first suggest a solution I really like that you put forward. or At least I took it to be a solution, which is the mediocre chess player. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe what the mediocre chess player is about, and for me, that's sort of a my model in my in the chess play playing the the game, the chess game of life. Uh, we're all mediocre, so <laughs> talk about that that setup. The mediocre chess player is someone who can't flesh out all the details, let's say, of the game plan of the decision tree. So, if you were a computer playing chess, um, a well developed computer, maybe built by DeepMind, Google DeepMind, then for any move that you made or your player made, you'd be able to know, you'd be able to, in a sense, see all of the possible moves, all of the possible ways to both, uh, you know, victory and defeat um, from any position in the game tree, both for yourself and for your uh, opponent, ideally. Um, And, you know, if we had that kind of capacity, then it would like life would just be like playing a chess game and you would make the decision based on, well, this is the path I want to take through the decision tree. If I move my pawn this way, my opponent will do this and then I will do this and then I will do this. And we just sort of know, you know, how best to, you know, you might have to rely on error in order to win, actually, if you were really, if if two computers were playing one another. But if you're mediocre, um, then you can't see that far down the decision tree. Um, humans are, by definition, mediocre compared to um, computers. But even if you're mediocre in the sense that you're not a grandmaster, so you don't have uh, the capacity to see you know, seven moves ahead, then the solution is instead to adopt rules to try to make the best decision given what you can see. So maybe you can see a couple of possibilities two or three steps down the, uh, the, the decision tree. Um, you think you know enough about your opponent to see what their possible moves would be like, but you really can't go farther than that. So instead, you follow the rule that, well, your queen is one of the most valuable pieces, maybe the most valuable piece. Um, or you follow some other rule, well, maybe it's best to give up a, a pawn in exchange for you know a bishop. These are rules that uh, weaker players in particular tend to rely on so that they can have a better chance of winning in the end, even if they, by definition, can't really see um, all the options in front of them. So I think that that level of epistemic humility of realizing that you don't know all the moves is a really important rule for life. Um, it's a really important rule for social science, obviously, as you can tell in my view, but 
we just think about living, uh, and we've alluded to this recently in, on the program, this idea that somehow at, at 17 or 16 or even 20, a young person should map out their best possible path and then just make, make it happen. I mean, I think that's increasingly what, what people and, and culture is telling young people today. I think it's a horrible way to think about life. I, I agree you should certainly make plans. You should make investments and decisions looking ahead. But the idea that you can somehow figure out what you need to do to get the rest of your life on this golden brick road is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what life's about. And, and a much better attitude is, let's see what happens. Let's try some new stuff. Let's experience things. I need to learn about myself. When I'm 17, I know so little, not just about how to get from A to B. For, that's hopeless already. I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> but, but the bigger problem is that what you're going to find out when you're halfway down the road, you don't want to get to B anymore. And that's all you know, related to your point about transformative experience. The most transformative experience is growing up. It's getting older. It's learning about things you didn't know about. And the idea that somehow you, you should, you know, take every, quote, take everything into account. I mean, I think that's the worst sort of um, way that, that our scientific uh, left brain tendencies push us. And it's a, it's a fool's game. It's wrong. It's not, a good th- it's not a good idea. Not just because, oh, it's really hard to do. It's not a good idea because that's not how to live life. So I agree. I agree with all of that. But let me add, there are two there are two ways of thinking about this problem. One is that you can't, you know, when you're 17, there's just so much that you don't know. But it's also the case that when you're 17, you think differently from how when you're 37 or when you're 47 or when you're 87, you know. And so it's not, it's part of it is about just getting the information. Then part of it is how you think about that information and what you decide and how you want to make sense of things. Both those things are changing constantly as you grow up and uh, as you get older. And, and maybe we're just getting better and better at thinking about things. Maybe we get better at thinking about things than we get worse at thinking about them. There's all kinds of, of issues here. I would like to say that at least for most of us in the normal course of a life, we do get better and better about thinking about things and understanding human weakness and human frailty and also like what, what people can do in a way that when you're 17, I think it's very hard. And there's an incredible play by uh, Edward Albee. I think it's called Three Women. And I'm going to get the details wrong, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's about a, the three women on stage. One's, I think, about 17. One's about 40. And one's about 70. And they're all the same person. And, of course, the 70-year-old looks back at the 17-year-old thinks, how could I have thought that way? What was I thinking? And the 17 <laughs> looks at the 70-year-old and thinks, there's no way I'm going to let me become that person. I'm going to be something different. But of course, that's similar to the way we look at our parents and we say, I'm going to be different. And then you find out you're not. You're going to be a lot like them. You're genetically like them. You're culturally, environmentally like them. And you, uh, and you look at yourself in the mirror one day and you realize you hold your mouth the way your dad does or the way your mom does. And you think, oh, well, I guess that's the way it has to be sometimes, at least in some things. And then in other areas, of course, you're nothing like them. In fact, you know, my view is in parenting, you know, people emphasize modeling. Some of the things we model, our kids adopt them 100%. The others, they go 180 degrees the other direction. You know, you tell your kids it's great to play the violin, and they hate the violin for the rest of their lives. They can't even stand to hear other people play the violin, and other people become great violinists. So it's, it's, it's kind of tricky. But my point is that, uh, you know, we do learn a lot as we get older. And, we're, and to emphasize your point, we're not the same person. 
we're different, different values, different understanding, different everything. I, I agree. And I want to add to that, especially because I think about like not only becoming our parents, but just becoming a parent because you might be. So there's the there's the view from the outside and the view from the inside. So the 17-year-old looks at the 70-year-old or the 40-year-old and says, oh, I don't want to be like that or that's not me. And from And that's how it can seem. And also, I wouldn't want to be like that. And yet, when the 17-year-old becomes the 40-year-old, and when the 40-year-old becomes the 70-year-old, from within, they're like, I'm really happy with who I am. Let's hope. You know, this, this is who I am. Right. And so, when you, like, that's part of what I mean about this. There's this very interesting, I think, split between the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective. Thomas Nagel uh, famously wrote about it. Others have, you know, noted, noted it. And I guess I think that that split is not resolvable in a straightforward way. And it's that split that's at the heart of some of these problems with decision-making and decision theory. Like failing to recognize that we have these, you know, uh, very different ways of thinking about who we are and what we should do and how we should make assessments. And then trying to manage both of these perspectives and sometimes trying to kind of having to reject one or more of these perspectives creates a lot of problems for the straightforward model that I think have just not been adequately recognized or appreciated and and addressed. So I wanted to mention a couple of things I thought you didn't talk about in the book, reaction, which uh, I was surprised you didn't talk about them. The, the uh, In a way, it's an answer to the question of now what? So we have this problem. We don't have enough information to solve it. We have to make a leap or we have to decide not to make a leap, which is another choice, right? Not becoming a vampire, not having children, not leaving home, staying in your hometown. Those are all different. They're still making a decision. And we don't have the data. And we only have one lifetime. It's tragic, at least feels that way to us, um, right? All the things we learn over the course of our life, all the regrets, all the sadnesses, um, you don't get to go around again and draw from the urn. So uh, that makes it you know, this would give life. I think, in many ways, gives life its its richness. Uh, is that it is finite, and um, and I think uh, I think that's important. But the way that these problems have been solved historically is through traditionally either norms or religion. And if you want to add to religion, you can add morality. And of course, they all get jumbled up together. But you know, the idea would be, you know, religion says. You should have children. Societal norms have often said, not just have children, have lots of children. Um, and we can, you know, obviously there are interesting theories about why these became norms, why religions evolved the way they did. If, you know, if you don't believe in, in divine revelation and you think it's just a cultural experience, then it all is the same thing. It's ways that cultures answered these problems for people so they didn't have to spend all their lives agonizing over it. In the past, you wouldn't agonize over getting cochlear implants. You had what was called in the old days a disability. You were, quote, handicapped. That's no longer acceptable language. And it's fascinating, right, that that's changed. But historically, all these things, no, nobody worried about these. Nobody agonized over them. They were easy. They just were done. And that that change, you know, is part of the the, the power and extraordinary nature of modernity to see ourselves as a blank slate that we can write on from scratch and, you know, I don't think we can, but certainly we have expanded the choices available to people and the cultural acceptability of all these choices, right? So there are extraordinarily wonderful things about that and there are costs to it. It's, to me, it's a complicated uh, question. As to, it's not a complicated question. It's just a reality that 
the move away from religion, tradition, and norms as the way to solve these unanswerable questions brings uh, a bit of angst that you've really chronicled in your book. Yes, um, I think it does bring it, it does bring angst, and also, I mean, norms are constantly changing. We have Correct. we face we face new situations as well, like climate change or new technology that requires to develop new norms, and so we you know we can't just kind of follow. Uh, new choices confront us. We have much more flexibility and we can't just follow the old norms. And arguably we shouldn't because another thing that happens is we recognize that some of those old norms really oh. were problematic or <laughs> unfair. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Yes. And so uh, the question is, well, how do we go about when I say, when you say, well, what next? My answer was, as before, we recognize what we don't know. And then, I mean, I'm a fan of, of, of empirical research, a huge fan of empirical research, and actually of decision theory. I just think that we need to um, explore alternative models and, again, you know, know what we can't, you know, do a better job of knowing what we can't know. Um, so that's my hope, uh, is that, you know, we recognize all the kinds of challenge. We do a better job of recognizing the challenges that we face, and then expand um, our research and our thinking so that we can try to handle them. Yeah, that that's a variation on the the Peter Singer optimism. I think, Laurie, I'm I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. accuse you of <laughs> saying, "Oh, we'll get there. We just need different models." My view is we won't, but um, wait, reasonable people can obviously disagree about this, and and even view the other person as unreasonable. But which you might, as Peter Singer did, I think of my viewpoint. But uh, I want to invoke something else here, and I think, again, I, was, I don't think you've talked about your book, which is the role of morality. Uh, you touch on it a little bit. I, I, let, me, let me phrase it in the vampire context, because I think it's easiest there. But it comes up in questions of you know, career choice, and you raise that very explicitly uh, in, other, in other work you've done. Uh, so here's my way of thinking about it in the vampire context. So you're, you're suggesting, well, let, let's suppose that all vampires are happy. They're all glad they made the choice. It's 100 percent unanimous. Now that Hume would be the first to point out. I think that you can't doesn't guarantee that you will be just like them. You you might end up being the exception. But you have a lot of let's say it's quote overwhelming evidence that you will be happy as a vampire. But then again, you'll be drinking blood. Uh, let's say of humans. To, let's get back to the ethical challenge. You you wanted to have. Uh, humanely raised animals or synthetic blood. Let's say you're going you're gonna to prey on human beings. Um, it's wrong. So another way to look at it is that, again, even though it might make you happy, it's just wrong. And, and similarly, there are careers that I think they're, they're wonderful. They make you happy. You're rich, whatever, the, whatever your, floats your boat. But we usually have another uh, outside calculus that says, yeah, well, it is attractive, but you shouldn't do it. And you're very. What I found interesting about your your um, your arguments, and, and this would be similar to say uh, a counter argument to say uh, Peter Singer's a different claim of Singer's that you, know, you shouldn't drink too many lattes. Maybe you shouldn't have any because you could help save children who are starving somewhere. Um, you're very. You invoke the first person experience and the importance of being true to one, yourself. And it seems to be a lot of philosophers say. True to yourself, you got to do the right thing, even if it means not being true to yourself. So if you need to, if if you want to be, uh, uh, you have the the opportunity to be a fabulous surgeon, and instead you decide to be a plumber. Shame on you! You could have saved so many more lives as uh, 
as a search and then as a plumber. I mean, plumber's a fine, honest, useful, fabulous thing to be able to do, but but heart, open heart surgery is better and you should be doing that. How do you answer that utilitarian claim, that moralistic claim that that, that first person calculus should be over, overcome? You should You should just give it, that's wrong. So first of all, I think it's totally unrealistic um, to eliminate the first person and just kind of perform these. I mean, the evidence. <laughs> this is why uh, this is like this is a real problem. I think for utilitarians or for consequentialists in general is that if you calculate what you should do in kind of purely third personal terms, you very quickly get into what I think of as like robot morals, where you know you um, you. <laughs> I mean, the straightforward thing is you know, you'll sacrifice one human life for, you know, uh, to save two um, on you, a kind of very simplistic and calculus. You, and thing. you never throw a birthday party for your child because that's yeah. cruel because there are children around the world who, who are yes, exactly. dying of malaria and you should be buying bed nets for them, exactly. not having a clown no. show up. Exactly. And it's not that I think that um, assessing these things carefully is wrong, because of course there's something very valuable and important there. But I think that um, that type of approach just loses touch with an essential part of being human, which again, as I'm going to emphasize, is the first personal side of things. And that there aren't any easy and simple answers. Um, and that. <clears throat> That by failing to take the value of first-person experience into account, that they're actually that their calculus is actually missing uh, various kinds of values for various kinds of variables, and that's an indica- and, and and when it goes so badly wrong, and with respect to some of these calculations, we can see that it's missing something. Um, and so, an analogy analogy I used, and I see if you agree with this. It's I think takes your point. I let's say I hate finance, I hate investments, I hate working in a bank. An investment bank, I find it corrosive, repellent, and I've, I don't want again. I don't want to mean to suggest that all people in finance feel this way or that it's true. It's not. Many things people do in finance are wonderful, and it's hard to see because it's indirect. But let's suppose you feel that way. You just think it's not for you. You hate it day to day. Use the example of a doctor who hates the sight of blood, doesn't enjoy being a doctor, a would be doctor, hates the sight of blood, doesn't enjoy the practice of medicine. Uh, and in the case of the finance investment banker, but but you can raise take all this money and give it to charity, and and my view is is that or give ninety percent of it to charity, that's fundamentally turning you into a slave. There's something anti-human about you know. There's one side of the morality that says yeah, you should overcome your dislike of blood. You should work. You should try to enjoy medicine, or you should think about the good things that finance does. Sure, day to day you might find it tedious and boring to run these these physics-based algorithms. But at the same time, if you hate it and you can't overcome it, it seems to me you've 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 sapped the humanity out of this this human being that that you're you're claiming you're trying to help them act morally. But there's something fundamentally immoral about that calculus. Yeah. Again, I think what's happened uh, with some of these um, approaches, both to decision theory and consequentialism and utilitarianism, is there's been an explicit emphasis on this kind of impersonal, uh, kind of quasi scientific, so-called scientific point of view, um, emphasizing the kind of mathematical quantitative side of decision-making, which of course is important and should be there. But at, but forgetting about 
the role of experience and value and the complexity um, that we face with respect to, you know, evaluating what it means to live a good life. And for example, it's, in a sense, it's captured by the paradox of choosing suffering. People can say that a life filled with suffering is actually more valuable for them. And I think that to adequately explain that, as let's say for someone who wants to try to reduce things to kind of quantifiable char- uh, you know, characterizations, there's a little bit, it becomes very difficult. Um, it becomes very, I think, strained and contorted. If we are willing to take in the value of first-person experience of the way that we live our lives, trying to be authentic, trying to, um, you know, recognize that there can be value in experiencing color and art and beauty, and that might not be able to, you know, not be able to reduce that to some kind of like uh, person or human independent or individual independent number and then make a kind of cross category comparison uh for example comparing one human life to three human lives and assuming there has to be something constant across them to make to so that we can make a choice about which will you know which is more ultimately valuable to preserve then we get into these problems right away and again i don't want to underestimate the importance of facing these kinds of questions i think i think we have to sometimes quantify things. We have to make hard decisions and sometimes we have to make these hard decisions without all the information that that we'd like to have. The point is rather uh, that you have to recognize that this part is missing and it's it's of value. And if it's of value, then and we can't have it, then we need to try to find some kind of alternative thing. Not dismiss its importance or think that because you care about the first person or you care about authenticity or these hard to quantify, you know, human emotions that you're somehow weak or soft or fuzzy headed or immoral. I think that's, that's, um, a, that's actually like the view of the kind of quasi-scientistic, you know, 20th century logical positivist <laughs> rather than anything else. Like that's a, that's the kind of a childish desire to keep everything precise and pristine and stick with the math because the really hard stuff, the morality and the kind of experience and the aesthetic character of things and the squishiness of, of real value, that's, that's, there are no easy answers there. There may not be any answers. My guest today has been Laurie Paul. Her book is Transformative Experience. Laurie, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>